thank you, Father. We, we thank you, God. We praise you, God. We love you, God, in this place. And we pray, Lord, that you would honor yourself here in our midst and teach us, God, to become more like you. Holy Spirit, we just ask for your help right now to open our hearts and to yield our minds to knowing you and to becoming more like you, God. And we love you, God. And we honor you, God. And we pray, Lord, that you would be more enthroned in this place and that you would be more lifted high in this place and that you would be more lifted high in our hearts and made more real to us this day. Father, we pray that you would continue to mold us and shape us and you would cause us to be people, God, that bear fruit in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. All right. I feel a little <coughs> contained. That's my little corner here, but that's okay. Um, I'm actually going to start in uh, Luke chapter 4, but you, but, but, you know these verses, so it's, you, don't need to, you don't need to flip with me. Uh, Luke chapter 4, um, I only need um, one verse, but I'll just uh, read the story from the beginning, even though um, you know it. Starting in verse 6, and he came to Nazareth, and when, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the covering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled the scroll, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes and all the synagogue were fixed on him. And began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And he said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proper physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the day of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they had heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. How does a group of people go from marveling at the gracious words that are coming out of his mouth in one moment to the next moment deciding that they need to kill him by throwing him off the hill? That's not fun. Of course, it's the same thing that happened to him in Jerusalem where, um, you know, on Sunday morning, Hosanna, Hosanna, <laughs> you know, and uh, later that week, the same mob is uh, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Why, why, why is that? I, I love this, actually, this particular passage because it highlights something that is um, very much a part of, um, very much a part of God, and yet something that uh, most of us really struggle to learn. Uh, Jesus says here in um, uh, keep First Kings 13 open. We're going to get to it in a second. Jesus says here, but in truth, you know, um, I, uh, in verse 25, um, when Jesus has to say in truth, that means that this is something really important because he doesn't lie. So he says, in truth, means I'm telling you something that you don't want to believe. Right? Okay. What is it that he's telling them they don't want to believe? But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in the days of Elijah. That's not the part that they don't want to believe. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah and none of them are cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. The truth that they don't want to accept, the truth that is difficult for people to accept, the truth that turns people from, wow, this is wonderful, to let's kill you now, is that God has a right to say no. That he is free, actually. That just because he is a healer does not um, confine him to healing everyone. 
And just because he's a liberator does not confine him. It doesn't bind him to liberate everyone. And just because he gives life does not confine him to give life to everyone. God is not a yes man. He's actually totally free. He's not imprisoned by the prayers of men. I don't know if you knew that. But like, you know, when you pray something, it, it, there's not some, you know, divine shackles that come upon God's hands. He's not a genie. He's not, you know, he's not subject to our whims. He's actually free. And one of the things that, one of the attributes of God's freedom is that God has, has, is, is free to say no. That is not something that men like. Because we don't like to worship gods who are free. We like to worship gods that are enslaved to our whims. Which is to say that if I offer you a sacrifice, then you will do X for me. If I do a dance for you, you'll send the rain. Uh, if, I, if I burn a goat, then you'll give me a harvest. Uh, if I give my tithes, then you'll heal me when I have a fever. Like, like we like gods that are subject to our whims. Um, we like a form of worship where when God does not do the things that um, we expect him to do, um, uh, you know, because of the way that we've related to him, that gives us an out. That gives us a right to deny him. That gives us a right to doubt him. That gives us a right to, um, to change our opinion of him. That gives us a right to rebel, and then you know, we feel self-righteous about it. Um, and uh, and, and that, that's all, of course, immaturity. But the problem with that is that um, as we, we become Christians, um, so many of us become trapped in, in yes mode. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. Uh, where... Um, we think that in order to be like God, that we say yes to everything. And so when people say, you know, uh, uh, will you serve at the homeless shelter on Saturday? Yes. I mean, you don't want to. You don't feel particularly called to. You don't feel the need to. You, you, you know, it's not really like burning on your heart to. But you just feel that, you know, that, well, I mean, God never says no, and therefore, you know, I can't ever say no. But the fact is that God says no plenty. In fact... If God never said no, he wouldn't be free. And what, what infuriated these people about Jesus, uh, what Jesus said, is that Jesus essentially asserted that he, didn't, he, that he, he was not captive to their desires. So they were saying, hey, Jesus, you all, did all these miracles at Capernaum. Do them here. Like, you know, you did them there. Why don't you do them here? And, and he refuses to. He, he does, does he have to? Did, did anybody earn the right to? No, but, but when he said, no, I'm not going to, then they said, okay, well, we have to get rid of you now. The threat of, of, of that kind of, that, 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 that culture, that attitude runs through uh, pretty much all of Christendom, it saturates Christendom, which is that <clears throat> in many of our relationships, as long as I say yes to you perpetually, we get to have a relationship. But as soon as I begin to say no to you in certain areas, then we can't have the relationship that we used to have. And because so many of us feel the pressure of this, we essentially become yes men. We become trapped by um, the yeses that other people want us to say to them. We don't know how to say no. We don't feel free to say no. And then so our relationships become, um, become managed by other people. The choices that we have, we're no longer free. Um, it's, 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 it's quite terrible. And, and part of the reason for this is actually because um, we're taught, uh, 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 you know, in church and uh, by reading the Bible that, um, you know, well, God always does the exact same thing, the exact same way to everybody. It, and it's just not that way. Like, God actually, um, he chooses. Like, that, that, like that, that's just the beginning and the end. Like, God does not owe anyone anything. Does God, does God owe anyone anything? No. I mean, his kindness is so... It's so abundant that he has enough for everybody who, um, who asks, but he doesn't owe anyone anything. And if he were to, if two men prayed the exact same way and God chose to answer one, that would not in any way diminish who he is. That would not in any way diminish. And in fact, it enhances who he is. I've been sick now, as you know, continually for the last two months. And uh, not for lack of praying, <laughs> Yeah, hopefully, you can understand. It's not for lack of prayer. It's not for lack of my wife praying for me. It's not for lack of, um, it, it's, it's not for lack of praying. And I mean, God can heal like any day of the week. I mean, it's, I, um, it, it's a funny, it's one of those funny sicknesses where it just like it roams around. Because God knows that I, 
I'm not, um, probably God knows that I'm not persevering enough to deal with a fever for two months straight. And so I'll have a fever and then I'll have a sore throat and then I'll have a cough and then I'll have a runny nose and I'll have another fever. And then I'll just, it, 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 just, it moves around. So it's, you know, a few days of each. So just a little flavor and then it keeps moving and, you know, as soon as my throat recovers. And, but but what, what is incredible is, um, and I haven't been sick this long since I was a child. I don't get sick very much. But <clears throat> what is incredible is that as you go through these things, um, you begin to realize um, how uh, deeply ingrained it is in us that, that um, our loyalty to God, that, that we feel like God owes us something. Do you, do you, do you understand? And it's like, at the beginning, it's like, okay, it's no big deal. And, and, but then at, at some point, we begin to cross over into this, like, I want to relate to God in such a way that when I ask him for something, that he is bound to do it. Like, we want to relate to him in that way. And, and that is something that we have to shed completely so that when we pray, we have no inkling of the fact that God is bound to us. But just as importantly, like that, that's just a truth. God is not bound by you. And if you um, uh, want to relate to him, like, like he's your slave and you do a dance for him and, and then he sends the rain for you, then you're not going to be a very satisfied Christian in the long run. Like, it's going to be okay in the beginning, um, because God sometimes appeases toddlers. But, but in the long run, um, as, as you come into maturity, he's not going to allow you to treat him that way. Um, just like, you know, when you're, when you're you know, six months and you, you know, yell at mom that, you know, you're hungry and she feeds you. But, you know, when you're six years old and, you know, you yell at your mom that she's hungry, she slaps you. Like, it, 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 God does not necessarily allow you uh, to, to relate to um, to him that way forever. He just doesn't. And so th- that's going to put a cap on, um, on your maturity. But, but this part, this is the part that's really easy, that, that's really important for us to understand. We cannot be yes men. It's not the will of God. That doesn't mean that we become no. And it doesn't mean that, that we are led by our laziness. It doesn't mean that we're led by our selfishness. Of course not. But what it means is that, that we have to understand that the ultimate, not an ultimate, that, that as we grow in Christianity, that we have to grow in such a place that the yeses that we give are true yeses in the sense that they're not manipulated out of us. They're not bribed out of us. They're not, we're not afraid of losing our friendships. We're not afraid of like, oh, you're not going to like me anymore. We're not, you, you know, uh, ladies, especially those of you that are of romantic dating age, like, yeah, I mean, can I be, well, you know, he's not going to like me anymore. It, 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 we can't, that's not the way it works. Like, like, that is a form of slavery. You walk into it, you're, you're going to keep walking into it. And so you just start from the very beginning. The yes is free, and the no is also free. I mean, sometimes maybe you should start with 10 no's. <laughs> do, do you understand? No, I feel like sometimes when I pray to God, I'm like, God, why? I've asked you like 600 times. Um, but sometimes I feel like it's just like, he's just like, I, I didn't have to say yes. I just want you to know, I did not have to to ever say yes to this. You know, eventually I did, you know, fine, you know, whatever. I'll let this thing work out. But it was not written in the stars. Like, you know, it was a choice that God made. And and he made it freely. And the important thing is that you and I also need to make it freely. One of the reasons that that we perpetually say yes to things is um, FOMO. Do you know what FOMO is? It's this Gen Z term that I only learned about um, a few years ago. Um, it, uh, the fear of missing out. And just as, you know, in the world, it's like, well, if I don't go to that party, then I miss, it, I miss out on something. And in, sometimes um, the reason that we do good works is because we fear missing out on something in God. We fear that if we don't give in an offering that we'll miss God's blessing. Uh, we fear that if we don't um, go to such and such event that God won't touch us. We, we fear that if we don't go to that Benny Hinn meeting that God won't heal us of cancer. And... Um, the, the, the difficult thing about this is that it's not, it's, it's, it's not that the, the foundational ideas are wrong. In, in other words, like um, when you are with people that have the anointing to heal, there is a greater likelihood you'll get healed. Like that, that's, not, that's not wrong. Um, it's just that that's not supposed to lead us into a fear. But when it does lead us into a fear, then, then, then so many of our yeses become motivated by, by fears, right? Not by joy. Not by excitement, not by pleasure, but by fear. And when so many of our, our, our guesses are motivated by fears, like what, rather than joys, what happens? We, we live a life full of fear. Even though we're doing all the things that we're doing, what, 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 we're, we're, we're constantly drowning in fears, even though by all appearances, all of our works are good. Um, 
the, the, uh, th- there's no one that knows your life so well that they know your capacity. Um, that, know, that, that can say to you, oh, you're not getting enough sleep, or um, you're not getting enough rest, or you're not getting enough uh, fun, or you're not, like, like and, and so, uh, uh, do, do you, like, does that make any sense? So, like, you need to be someone who is able to say no to things. In fact, there's a real danger to not knowing how to say no. Um, and the real danger is, is this, that um, if, uh, let's just say the devil, I'm, I'm not, it's not, not Lucifer himself, let's just, just, all the intelligence and all the forces of spiritual darkness that are against you, yeah? If they know that you're someone that is unable to say no, and they want to deviate you off of God's plan for your life, isn't it really simple for them to do that? They just fill your life with a bunch of things you have to say yes to before the opportunities that God brings along your way, like actually come into your life. Isn't that like, isn't that really easy? Yes. And so years ago, I've told you this story. We invited Roland to come speak at something, and I, um, back then I, I thought that they were all, um, had very full schedules. Turns out Roland doesn't. <laughs> and uh, no, I'll explain to you why. And um, we invited him to come and speak to it's, uh, something that was like, uh, I don't know, nine or 12 months later. Um, which, that, that's what people, the conference planners were telling me, like, oh, you want to get on somebody's schedule, you need to, at least a year, maybe two, you know. And so 11 months out, I'm like, oh my God, like, you know, we don't have any, they're all booked. Um, and so Roland said, um, you know, that's great, I'll pencil it in. I said, pencil it, like, pencil it in. <laughs> pencil it in, like, I had to book a venue. I pay a $50,000 deposit. Like, what are you, like, what are you talking about, like, penciling in? And, and he said, um, and he said, well, um, if nothing better comes along, I'll be there. <laughs> and then he says, I have the, r- to the right to reserve to cancel. If something, Lily, there's an empty seat right here. I'm just kidding, right next to Danny. You don't have to. Um, <clears throat> um, and he said, if nothing better is, that comes along, then I'll, um, uh, then, then I'll be there. And I was like, um, Roland. And, and, and he said, um, he said, I cannot make plans. Um, I, I cannot make plans in my life. I cannot schedule my life in such a way that I don't have room for the things that God wants me to do. So like, unless I ha- like have some word of God that like, th- like, you know, some like undeniable, this is absolutely God. This must be God. This cannot be any other way. I can't, I can't, I just can't make this sort of commitment to it. That means that I don't have room in my life for other things, better things that may come along. And, and I, you know, in retrospect, um, I, I really appreciate that. I, I appreciate how honest he was because pretty much every uh, itinerant speaker we've ever um, invited has had to cancel one point uh, or another, except Brother David. He's, he's never canceled. But um, Chase had a grandchild being born, you know, when he was supposed to be here and he had to cancel. Heidi had her, her grandchild was born when she was supposed to be here and she had to cancel. I mean, it was just like everybody. I mean, it was people who have been sick. People have like couldn't visas and passports and couldn't get into the country. I mean, they're just they're, like things happen. Do you understand? Like you know, yeah, uh, musicians had to make a recording, and it, I mean, it was just like like things happen, and we understand. The problem though is that the Bible instructs us to say yes or to say no, right? And when you say yes, people are supposed to be able to count on your yes. And so don't say yes, say no, or maybe, or or yes, but <laughs> do you know? Yes, but you're actually second place to anything better that may come along. And that offends people, and that, that doesn't give people like really great feelings, but it gives you freedom to actually know and to experience the, um, uh, the will of God for your life, which turns out to be very important. First Kings 13, let's read this story, one of my favorites. Very confusing, I mean, not confusing um, in its point, confusing in its um, lack of fun. All right. Uh, it, it, a little bit of a long story. The second part's the important part, but we'll start with the first. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. And Jeroboam, who was king at the time, was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, um, saying, O altar, altar, thus says the word of the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. He will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places and make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is a sign the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. When the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he crowded against the Bethel altar, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, seized him, and his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so he would not draw it back to himself. And the altar was also torn down, and the ashes poured down from the altar, according to the sign the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. 
And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me, that my hand might be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go with you. And I will not eat the bread or drink the water in this place. For it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. And so he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel. And his sons came and told them all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his son, Saddle your donkey for me. So he saddled the donkeys from him, he mounted it, and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God, king from Judah? And he said, I am. And then he said, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water from there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said, I also am a prophet, as you are. And the angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house so that you may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him, and he went back with him, and also and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet and brought him back, and cried to the man of God who came to him from Judah, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten and drunk, he saddled his donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back, and he went away, and a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood beside it. And the lion also stood beside the body. And the whole men passed by and saw the body thrown on the road, and the lion standing by the body. And he came and told in the city where the old prophet lived. And the prophet who had brought him on the way heard of it. He said, It is a man of God who has disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word the Lord has spoken to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And he saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the robe. And the donkey and the lion stood beside the body. And the lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the uh, prophet um, took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which this man of God is buried, and lay my bones against his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar of Bethel, against all the houses of the high places in the cities of Samaria, just surely come to pass. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made the priest of the high place, again from all among all the people, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places, and this thing became sin in the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut off and destroy from the face of the earth. All right, this is an incredibly sobering story. And it's, it, I like to say every story in my Bible is my favorite, but this really is one of my favorite. It, I mean, it's in the top, you know, several thousand at least. Like, it's really one of my favorites. It's very convicting every time I read it. We cannot confuse the word of God with the word of man. Even when other people tell us that they've heard from God for us, they can lie, they can be confused, they could have selfish intentions, they could have mixed up the word of God with something else. It doesn't matter if they are our friends, it doesn't matter if they are prophets, it doesn't matter, like, it, does that make any sense? Unless it's somebody in your direct line of authority, your mom, your dad, your apostle, like, you know, somebody that you know for a fact, you know, like, I'm supposed to obey this individual. Um, we do not defer our yeses and noes to other people. And if you do, uh, like, that's on the, the consequences that are, are, are on you. Many people have wasted their lives because they were not able to say no when they were supposed to say no. And I'm not just talking about immoral things like gambling and drinking of course you should be able to say no to like, do you want to go to the strip? No. Like, uh, do you want to go gambling in Vegas? No. no like, no interest, actually. Like, and not just like, no, like, help me, Jesus. No, no I have no interest. Like, I have no interest in losing money. Um, I don't like the flashing lights. Like, it's, so, <clears throat> so no, but, but it's not just that. 
it's to the good things in life. It, it's it, that we have to be able to say no. Does that sort of make any sense? Years ago, um, I, I, you know, I, I read the verse like everybody else. You know, give to everybody who be, uh, give to those who beg from you. And I always thought, okay, well, I have to I have to give to to everybody who asked me to give. Which I I, I taught this. And I practiced it. Like, I mean, you know, it wasn't like, like 100% everybody, but it was, it was almost everybody. And, um, and, and I can't remember exactly when it was, but I, it was in a time where um, somebody was taking an offering. So, of course, I was, I was going to give something in. Um, and I felt this, you know, sometimes when God wants to correct you, he doesn't lay it on you all at once. Because that would just be too, that would just be too, too. God is considerate sometimes. And uh, maybe it would just be too jarring. So, so sometimes when you have like very sincerely held beliefs, he kind of like chops at it like a little bit at a time. Do you know? And, and, and until like he chops like four or five times and then you realize, oh, I'm wrong about this, aren't I? And, and so I just felt the, slight, the slightest nudge in my heart. Like, like, are you doing this out of the joy to do it? Are you doing this because you feel compelled to do it? And, and, and like, why? Like, like, why does it feel like, why, why, why should righteousness feel like slavery to you? And, and so, like, so then that was, like, that, so then that became, so then that became a problem. And so that was only the first time. And then, you know, it, it happens for a few times, and then eventually I was like, wait a minute, like, I need to reassess this. There is actually, it actually is incredibly useful to teach people to give every time they're asked to give, because that frees you from the love of money. And at some point until you feel like the money is yours, you have no control of it, you don't need any control over it, and you're willing to give it freely, you don't need to have any, like, it, you're totally free of it. But then, like, when you've gotten to that point, then you also don't want to be enslaved to giving your life to something. Like, you're, you're, you're now willing to give your life, so you're not like, you know, but, but now you don't have to be enslaved to giving your life to think something that God has not asked you to give your life to. And, and, and that process of freedom is, is something that, that um, I really want to encourage you to work out. I want to encourage you to understand this. There's not, this is not asymmetric risk where like the risk of saying no is less than the risk of saying yes. So in other words, like, like that's what FOMO is, right? FOMO is where you don't appreciate that, that uh, saying no when you're supposed to say yes, um, sorry, saying yes when you're supposed to say no is just as destructive as saying yes when you're, the other way around. Does that like make any sense? They're equally destructive. I forgot literally the law. Like they're equally destructive. FOMO is that you only appreciate the, the, the downside in one direction. You don't appreciate the downside in the other direction. Filling your life with things that God has not asked you to fill your life with is deeply problematic. It, it's not a good idea. It's deeply problematic. In fact, what I would encourage you is to actually have capacity in your life to add more things. To have like events in your calendar that you can just erase because nobody treated them like they were firm, do you know? So in order to make room for other things. Does that sort of make any sense? That was all the preamble. Let's get to the actual sermon. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about um, uh, the parable of the sower, which you know, but there's something about this that has really just struck me and, and something I want to highlight as we uh, go into 2024. It's going to be a very busy year for us, and and um, and uh, this one is is always really good. A sower went out to sow, verse three, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. They had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold. Some 60-fold, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. When Jesus gives four types of soil, and only one of which is good soil, that's the type of soil you should sow on, by the way. You're not in prison to sow on all types of soil. You actually get to choose. I don't know if you know that. Like You, you, get, you get to choose. And so, um, what is it that distinguishes the good soil from the bad soil, that it bears fruit. And what, in this case, what for a seed, what does it mean to bear fruit? It means to self-replicate. It's not that, it's not that hard. What does it mean for an apple seed to bear fruit? It means to produce more apple seeds. You're not, no, it means to produce apples. The, yes, in a certain sense, 
because you like the taste of the apple, but my, a biologist will tell you, the apple is just a trick uh, to expose the apple seed so that, the, so that the apple tree can continue. Like, does that sort of make any sense? And so fruitfulness, fruitfulness um, in God's creation is measured by its capacity to self-replicate. When you've done something that is fruitful, what it means is that it also is able to do the thing that you did to make it so. When you raise up a child to the fullness of maturity, the child is able to raise a child to the fullness of maturity. That's how you know your child is now mature. If your biology teacher teaches you, I don't like biology. If your geometry teacher teaches you, I don't really like geometry. If your probability professor <laughs> does a good job teaching you probability, what it means actually is that when you're done with the class, you could go back to the beginning and teach the same class to the next group of freshmen. You may not because they have, you know, they have graduate students who need a job. But, but that's the idea. <clears throat> the idea of being fruitful is that when you've accomplished whatever it is that you're going to accomplish, um, the thing that you invest in, the people that you invest in, are able to recreate the thing that you did for them. They're, they're able to do it. And so, in, in some sense, like, the greatest missions works are those that raise up people that then become missionaries, like, among their own people. So at some point, it's like, okay, well, you know, I lay down my house, my home, my family, and my job. To, and, and now, like, when you're laying also down your house, your home, your family, and, and you're, you're, like, you're doing the same thing I'm doing with your own people, like, that's when we know, okay, we've borne fruit. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean that uh, you know, we don't want people to you know, sit in church that don't become missionaries. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that. It just means that at some point, in order for something to survive, it has to be self-replicating, right? Everything that God created that lives replicates itself. Like, humans don't create monkeys. We create other humans. Monkeys create monkeys. They don't create zebras. Like, like, like everything that is alive replicates itself. Does that make any sense? You guys are looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. You must know what I'm talking about. And so, so this creates a foundation for us to think about the choices that we make in life. Choices, choices, choices. If you feel like you're trapped in the yes mode, then you don't need to make choices because you say yes to everything that comes your way. Do you want to go to this conference? Yes. Do we go to that mission trip? Yes. Will you donate to this thing? Yes. Will you help me buy a car? Yes. Will you help me move boxes? Yes. Will you, you know, like, you know, whatever, serve in the soup kitchen? Yes. And, and th that, that's just not, that's not, that's not the right approach. But as soon as you're actually able to escape from that and get to a place where you're free to say yes and no, then you're burdened with the necessity of making choices. And how do you make good choices? Is it by feeling? <laughs> that, that, that's my point. In reading Matthew 20, uh, 13, I want you to understand the fundamental standard by which you measure your choices is after you've done that thing that you were supposed to do, is the thing that you've created now able to create its own fruit? Ultimately. Maybe not tomorrow. But, but are you creating a process by which that thing that you did now creates its own fruit? Do you remember the story of, this, of the Good Samaritan? Jesus tells a story, and then at the end of it, he says, go and do likewise. Do you remember that? In other words, the point of telling the story and the point of the, the Good Samaritan may not have been a fake story, by the way. It, it may have been something that actually happened. But the point of the Good Samaritan uh, being what he was, was that, was that after it was accomplished, that, that that story would replicate itself and that other people would do the same thing. In other words, if I buy you a coffee and you go buy somebody else a coffee, then, then the, the thing that, that has been the, the, the free coffee has borne fruit. But in the world, there is a way to do good works that is not self-replicating. That it, it's, not, it's intentionally not self-replicating, actually. And it is a trap um, to, to, uh, to do good works in this way. Financial aid is, uh, is the classic example of which you've all experienced. When I went to college, I applied for financial aid. I don't know if any of you did as well. Um, I would assume that many of you did. Um, but so we applied for financial aid, and, um, uh, and it was very helpful to us. And, my first year in school, and financial aid is a classic, like, non-self-replicating thing. And, the, and the, the reason is because um, it's structured to not be self-replicating. Let me explain. Um, we have a financial aid program where we have a lot of money, and we're willing to give it to you if you can prove that you have none. It's not at all self-replicating. 
Because the reason that you get it is by um, demonstrating that you don't have any. And the culture that that creates is people that have a lot giving to people that have none. Let's try a different approach. I really believe in you. And so even though you don't have enough for this, I believe if I invest in you, that one day you will invest in others, so I'm willing to invest in you now. Is a totally different mentality. You're doing the exact same thing, but what you're doing is you're creating an entirely different mentality by creating a different explanation of why you're doing what you're doing. Does that make any sense to anyone? Explanations turn out to be very important. And what most of um, us face every day in the world as we go about the world, um, and, and, and there's a disconnect of uh, political realities and other things, is that the way that people explain things is very different. I'll give you an example. I.e., this, I think this week surfaced a video of a famous economist at Harvard named Roland Fryer, and the way that he was shamely, uh, shamefully treated at Harvard a few years ago and suspended and things like that. Uh, Roland Fryer is actually a very famous economist, and, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that when I post a video, it brings it to the attention of the whole church. But for those of us that follow economics, his work has been well known for a very long time. And the reason that he was fired by Harvard was because he wrote, he's not a conservative, he's not a, not a Republican, um, but, but he wrote papers that questioned um, academic orthodoxy on race disparity. For instance, I think it was in 2006 or so, he wrote a paper examining um, uh, educational achievement gaps between black and white children. I think it was in uh, Philadelphia. And <clears throat> you have to acknowledge that uh, the gap ex exists, that black children enter school um, with lower uh, uh, reading and math capabilities. And the explanation was always about, well, they're, they're black, and the system is, is, is systematically racist, and, and so black children just achieve less. But Roland Fire explained that was not the case at all. He, controlled for like very basic things, like I, if you uh, do econometric research, this will sound completely basic to you. He controlled for socioeconomic level, and as soon as you control for socioeconomic level, you find that half the gap disappears. And then he controlled for um, the number of books that are owned in the household. And when you control for the number of books that are owned in the household, the gap completely disappears. And if you just, if you control for two things, the family's income and the number of books in the family, the achievement gap in reading just and math completely disappear by the first grade. And that's a powerful outcome. And, uh, and it was for powerful papers like this that he won the, um, the Bates Clark Medal, which is the most prestigious award in economics other than the Nobel Prize. Um, and he wrote several papers of this sort. One on uh, black policing that happened in, in uh, uh, was published in 2019. And he found no disparity um, in, in, uh, in, uh, in police brutality between different races. Um, controlling for different circumstantial outcomes and things like that. But, but, the, the, but here's, the, here's the thing. When the explanation is that, uh, when the explanation is that the educational system is fundamentally racist, then that's nothing that we can fix and we create a culture where there is permanent tension between races and the permanent desire to fix a system that cannot be, fi you cannot fix the fact that there are different people of different races. But when the explanation is, um, the, the families just need more income and the families just need more books, then the explanation shifts to something that is, that is uh, uh, eminently accomplishable. Do you, like, does that make any sense? Like, all you need to do is build more libraries and open them for longer hours and provide a better welfare system or, like, you know, whatever it is, provide better um, uh, a preschool support or, or, you know, different things like that. But, the, the, but, the, but everything changes when you move the explanation to something that is intractable to something that is tractable. Does that sort of make sense? In God, in, and I, I'm using that as an example because in the kingdom, there, there are, we have to position ourselves in the exact same way and we have to design our choices in the same way, which is to say that if you, um, if you and I agree to invest our life in things, in problems that will never be fixed and cannot be fixed and constantly require perpetual output for like, for, to no end, for no fruit, um, then like, that's a poor idea. Because Jesus' idea of good soil is something that replicates itself in a generation. 
not just like, you know, I, I, you gave me a fish, I'm gonna give somebody else a fish, but 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, that's what Jesus defined as good fruit. And so when we're looking for uh, projects, um, mandates, investments, things to uh, invest in, we're not looking for a money drain that we can just sink money into for the next 50 years. We're looking into something that like a, a, a finite period, a finite investment for a finite period to create something that then becomes independent, fully self-sustainable, and something that matures and grows on its own. I'm not talking about money, actually, because I'm willing to invest money for a very long period. I'm talking about like labor, effort, in, in, like intellect, um, devotion. Like I'm, I'm looking for something that is able to raise up people. I'm looking for men and women that are able to raise up people just as godly, just as devoted, just as passionate, just as aggressive as themselves. Is, does that make any sense? I'm not looking for a Bible study program that just shuffles people through like over and over again where nobody has changed and nothing ever happens. And it will just, it, we're just adding to a tally of people that we've, shoved through our Bible study program. What I want to know is, have you created any sons? Like, like that's, that's what I want to know. I want to know, like, is there anybody who is better than you that you've trained up? Because Jesus considers that to be fruit. Yes. Is there now an apple tree taller, you know, than you? Than you? Because if there is, that's a good tree. And so when we're thinking about like yes to no, this is, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about you don't have to invest in all types of soil. You can actually choose to invest in things that gain a life for themselves. That, that's, you know, and, and that's the greatest joy. That's the most difficult part about ministry. And it's also the greatest joy in ministry is that we're not investing in things that deteriorate. We're investing in things that have a, the capacity to grow. We're investing in things that could have the capacity to do what we did, but better. Do you know? It, it, like, what I want to do is, <clears throat> I want to, like, imagine if you were a Bible study leader and you did this. Okay. So you worked really hard. You created a Bible study program. You took a group of 10 people through the program. And then they said, okay, that was a great program. Now we're going to improve it, and we're each going to go teach 10 people. That's a Bible study program. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, okay, now, like, thank you for your work. Like, you know, like, like you're awesome. Now we're going to build on this. We're going to make some changes. We found some areas where we can do better. And, and now we're each going to go, and we're going to lead our own program. That's good soil. <clears throat> the man of the Gadarenes, who had a legion of demons, do you remember? When they were cast out, it was completely free. And he said, um, hey, what, let me go with you. Do you, do you remember that? He said, hey, Jesus, follow you wherever you go. Let me go with you. She said, no, go home. Tell everybody what God did for you. Uh, that's incredible to me. Because what, <laughs> what that means is that Jesus evidently thought that he had received enough in his life that he could go and spread the good news. And he didn't need to continue. Feed, 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 feed. There's something so profound that happened to him. <clears throat> that he was actually ready to go and be a tree of his own and spread the good news on his own in his own village to his own home, to his own neighbors, a tree that now sets other people free. That's good soil. Do you know? Our problem is sometimes we don't target good soil. We target metrics or statistics. Like We're not looking for good soil. We're looking for things um, uh, make us look good in other people's eyes. But, but what God wants us to do is he wants to find, he doesn't want us to just spray seed on all types of soil. He wants us to find the best and then put as much seed in there as possible so that every seed we sow produces a hundredfold in return. If we can do exponential math of this sort, I mean, those of you that, that um, know, I mean, you know, if you can do exponential math, like you're gonna cover the world with the Great Commission in a, in a generation. Like it doesn't take too many exponential replications, especially if your base is 100. Like, you know, like, if you're raising things to 100th power, it doesn't take too many generations, too many cycles of that to cover the earth. Like, when I was, when I was um, uh, uh, doing uh, uh, job interviews a long time ago, one of the, the first questions is, imagine that you have a, a lily pad that is, you know, one inch by one inch, um, you know, or, or something to that effect, um, and it, uh, you know, and it, it, it doubles in size, like, you know, every, uh, every hour or something like that. How long does it take to cover the face of the earth? You're like, uh, a long time. No, the answer is not very long at all. Very few cycles, and it covers the face of the earth. That's exponential math. Exponential math works when we find soil that self-replicates. And we begin to carve off the branches that are not self-replicating. 
because we learn to say no to things. We learn to turn things off. We learn to change our focus. And it's not a rejection that like all oh, this and where it, it sometimes it's just that that's not what God has asked me to do. Do you know, just like eating at the old prophet's house was not a sin for everyone. It was a sin for him because it was not what God had asked him to do. And the, the devastation of doing something, of the devastation of failing to say no is just as great as the devastation of failing to say yes. There's one, there's two ingredients, I think, that are really necessary. I'm shifting again, and then I'm gonna end this. Um, there's two ingredients, I think, that are really necessary for people's faith to continue to be self-replicating. And, and the first is that we have to be really conscious of this. Like The desire to create self-replicating things is, is very important. But there's, I think there's two things that just about everybody needs in order for the replication to continue. Two things that, that I think like when they disappear from a culture, then the move of God begins to disappear. And um, the first thing is the work of God, and the second thing is the word of God. Uh, there may be more, but these are the two things that I can identify. In the uh, last few verses of the book of Joshua, it's one of the most famous verses of the book of Joshua, which uh, you guys know I've... Uh, quoted before and, and, and think about often, it says um, uh, in verse 31 of uh, chapter 24, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord had done for Israel. Um, and then the word of God, and then the, 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 um, the loyalty to God stopped, which is very interesting because what it meant is that as long as what the leaders of Israel had seen for themselves their, with their own eyes what God did in Israel in Joshua's days, the people of Israel were safe. They were, they were faithful to the Lord. But as soon as there was no longer anyone who had personally experienced the work of God, that the people began to turn astray. And this is what, it's amazing that, like, that, that very healthy cultures can turn unhealthy when people stop experiencing God for themselves. Or when people are raised without an experience of God. Um, as you guys know, and it's also true for you, but most of my peers in college, um, like their faith has not survived. I, I don't know how to like say it nicely, but like most, the faith of most young adults has not survived. The faith of most of the people that you grow up with in Sunday school and young, it generally just doesn't survive. And so I, I, I sometimes I ask, like, wh why are, like, why are, like, those just that are different, like, what, who have managed to survive for a little bit longer, like, why are we different? I'm, I can assure you, it's not because I'm smarter. I can assure you. It's not because I'm more righteous. Uh, like, let's just get the basics out of the way. Like, you know, I don't even think it's more because I'm more devoted to God or because I jumped higher, you know, during the worship. It's not like, it's like, you know, or, or because, you know, people thought I was more passionate. It's none of that. I think it was because I, my dad in particular um, put a huge focus on me personally witnessing God doing things when I was growing up. <clears throat> and I took this to churches, one in particular, where like, when you were part of that church, you really could not avoid personally seeing with your personal eyes God doing things. Healing people, transforming communities, people coming to the faith. I, you, I wasn't personally leading them because they were, I mean, I was a kid and there were people older than me, but uh, but it was happening right in front of my eyes. I could not deny it. Like, I could not deny the fact that it was happening. And I, I think over the years, like, there are things that I could deny. Like, there, you know, the, the interpretations of different verses come and go. Like, you know, commentaries come and go, and stories come and go, and Bible study methods come and go. And maybe sometimes even your, your faith in the Bible and the veracity of the Bible or the authenticity of the Word of God or things like that, even that may, you know, sort of uh, ebb and flow, you know, depending on seasons and pressures and, and things like that. Like, you know, for some of us, even that comes, that comes under assault. But the, the, one of the things that is very difficult to deny is your own experience. Like, if you've seen personally, um, 
someone who was dead for six hours come back to life. I'm like, that's a little bit hard to shake. Do you know, like, and if you've seen like 100 people with stage four cancer, like their tumors melt off their bodies, like, that's, a li- that's just a little bit hard to shake. And if you remember that time where your church only had food for 30 people with 3,000 people ate and you know, everybody was full and you had leftover prime rib, like there are certain things that are like very, very difficult for you to shake. Do you know? And, and that's just, that's true. On the history of the work of God is that like every single person, the reason that, that Christianity dies and, and, and is continually dying in America is that we raise people and we build churches where it is not necessary. In fact, it's not convenient. In fact, it's very rare that people genuinely experience God doing things in an undeniable way. Like you need to experience God doing things. And part of that means that you need to be doing things with God. I mean, there's no work that we do in this church, not catering, not sending emails, not setting a production where the goal is not to encounter God as you're doing it. Well, what kind of miracles can God do when I'm like connecting XR cable? Like, friend, you have no idea all the times the devil messes with our cables. Like, it, like, like if you will apply yourself to the work of God and allow him to put you where he wants to put you, you will see God at work no matter what it is that you're doing. Oh God, how could God, you know, the catering? Um, well, you know, you accidentally ordered, you know, one tray of chicken when you should have ordered 10. And yet that tray of chicken lasts, you know, for 500 people. Like, like you, you know, you were 30 minutes late to the drive and the drive was supposed to take, it was supposed to be 20 miles, but you drove two and you're back at the hotel. Like, like there, there, there's, there's plentiful opportunity in life for God to work, you know, in such a way that you cannot deny him. And as long as you're looking for them, as long as you exist in a culture where it's normal that you're interacting with God through your daily life, the work of God will become manifest to you. But when you live in a culture where nobody expects God to do anything, nobody hopes for God to do anything, nobody looks for God to do anything because we got it. You know, we got the building, we got the money, we got the people, we got it. Um, then yeah, you may not experience him. But as you're continually looking towards God, as you're continually willing to tell testimonies about God, as you're continually believing God to do X, Y, or Z, then he will absolutely and naturally work in your midst. And then all you and I have to do is tell the testimonies so the faith increases and the faith spreads. That's number one. Number two is that people absolutely need access to the word of God. I'll tell you a story, and then we'll end this. There's a group of China. You know China has many ethnic minorities. There's a group of people called the Lisu people. And um, uh, for a very long time, they didn't have the gospel. In the beginning of the 20th century, there was a, uh, an effort made. I don't think it was orchestrated. I think it was just a move of God. An effort was made to bring the gospel to them. And so a series of evangelists began to go to the Lisu people. And there are many obstacles. But one of the primary obstacles was that they did not have a written language. And because they did not have a written language, it was not possible to give them a, a, a text of the Bible. There were no audio Bibles at the time. And so it was not possible to give them a text of the Bible. And so after many iterations of missionaries um, uh, baptizing people, but then the faith of the people not increasing because they didn't have access to the Bible, um, there's a, a missionary named Scott Pollock, who became quite famous for this actually, um, created a script specifically for the Lusu people. So he created a script uh, in the uh, mid-1910s, I believe, and taught it to the people. And then um, they began to uh, um, translate the Bible into this new script that had been created just for them. I mean, this is this monumental work. And began the work in the early 1920s and finished the New Testament in 1938. The, the reason I'm giving you years is because I want you to see the effect of this. In 1938, the Lisu people had a new language created just for them. It's a very basic language, much more basic than Mandarin, or, um, but, but, but good enough for a basic translation of the Bible. And it was accomplished in 1938. In the 1950s, you probably know, if you know anything about uh, Chinese history, the communists came and decided to eradicate Christianity out of China. And so they came in and they began to sweep, um, the sweep away the text of the Bible in mass. Um, very common for Bibles to be burnt, gathered together and burnt and things like that. Christians were tortured, churches were shut down, and things of that sort. And one young man um, uh, was, was kidnapped and interrogated um, by the communists. And, and, uh, and, and uh, he said to them, um, um, uh, not out of defiance, but just as a fact, he said, um, I think that you're too late. And they had, no, listen, they'd only had the New Testament for 12 years or so, 12, something to that effect. And he said, I, I, I think you're too late. He said, um, the Bible is already in our blood. You're not going to wash it out. 
And so the communists were able to gather the physical text of the Bible and totally pull them out of the village. But they couldn't pull it out of the minds of the people. And so even though the people were tormented, even though people were, the religious people were persecuted, <clears throat> this is one of the major revivals in China in the early, um, in the early 20th century. Their masses, hundreds of thousands were converted. Um, they couldn't pull it out of their minds. And so they no longer had access to the physical text of it, but it was still in them. And because it was still in them, for several decades afterwards, the Lusu people were continuing to send their own missionaries to other tribes and even into India to preach the gospel and to build churches. They were some of the early um, preachers to the Naga headhunters in India, for instance, which was also the, the base of one of the major revivals. They helped start that revival because the people that were literate a generation ago had a language invented for them to know the word of God, had about a decade to absorb the word of God and in only, one, only access to the Bible for a decade. Yeah, and then it was pulled out of them. But that like allowed a healthy, growing church to exist among that people group for an entire generation. But here's what happened. That early generation began to die away. In the 1990s, when missionaries went back there, they found that even though the people were still Christian, they no longer had knowledge of the word of God. The young people did not know John 3.16. The young people had never been taught Psalm 23. The young people had never read, never understood the most foundational doctrines of Christianity, and missionaries were no longer being sent out. The churches were no longer, they existed, but they were no longer thriving. Why? Because access to the word of God had been cut off from the people. So there are certain things that are, you know, like oxygen and sunlight, you know, for trees. And, and you know, the works of God, the word of God, and if these things can, be, can, can exist and can saturate the church, and then if we can set our hearts to investing in good soil, understanding how to say yes, understanding how to say no, devoting ourselves only to the things that we believe will create life in the long term. I think that God can really do some extraordinary things. That It, kind of, it requires us to move out of just yes, 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 yes. It, it requires us to get to this place where we really have a very strong sense of what the ultimate objective is. The ultimate objective is to raise up somebody better than yourself. Preferably 100 people. Like, preferably 100 you know, better than yourself. And when everybody, when we set our hearts to do that, and when we set our hearts to exposing people to, to who God is, the way he speaks, the way he moves, the way he works, when we, when we make the Bible available to all men, you know, that, that are willing to read it, that are willing to listen to it, um, it, it this goal of, of fulfilling the Great Commission honestly can be accomplished in a generation. Um, if you give somebody who loves the Word of God an audio Bible for even a year or two, that will set them up for the rest of their life. If, that's, if, if then the communists take them and they throw them in jail, for the next 40 years, the, um, their hearts can be filled with a word that played for only two. Like, like it's just, it's, you know, it's that powerful. Do you know, we, we've seen this um, after the Cultural Revolution. We've seen that, that men in China and Russia and Romania and so many places are willing to sit in prison for 40 or 50 years without anything because a seed that was sown is able to survive that long. And the question is just sowing the seed in the right soil in the right way and allowing it to prosper and allowing it to grow. And that involves not just not saying yes to everything, that involves us making really good choices as we go. All right, why don't we stand? We'll pray. Um, Esther's not going to let me talk for the rest of the week so my voice can recover. Father, thank you for you. Thank you, God, for all the things that you've done. And thank you, God, for the things that you're leading this church into. And Father, even as we want to be people that are obedient to authority, Father, wherever you have given us the right to make choices, we pray that you would be teach, make us a people that are able to make choices well. That are able to choose the things that you've given us to choose. They're able to embrace the things that we're able to embrace and also to say no and to leave behind the things that are for yesterday. Make us free as you are free. And help us, God, not to miss out on the things in this life that you've created us for. Because we already blocked our time. Because we already blocked our energy. Because we already blocked our devotion, our mind, our, our, our mental capacity for something else. Help us, God, to be free. To really know your heart for us. And to just absorb the fullness of what is available. 
Father, I also pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to be able to discern good soil when it comes our way. And to not freely invest in everything, a little here, a little there, a little over there, but to give ourselves fully for the things that will really matter in the long run. We don't want to sow seeds that get stolen by the enemy. We don't want to sow seeds that drown under worldly pursuits. We want to sow seeds, God, that will really bear fruit unto your glory. Thanks, God, for you. Thanks, God, for all that you've done for us. We love you and honor you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Carolyn, you guys can come up and do a few more songs and we'll close.